Welcome to Pop Pantheon, the podcast where we completely overanalyze all of your favorite pop stars and then rank them in the official Pop Pantheon. This is your host, DJ Louis XIV, and I first off just want to give a huge, huge thank you from the bottom of my heart to every single Pop Pantheon listener that came out to Gorgeous Gorgeous this past weekend. It was once again one of the greatest nights of my career. I got to meet a bunch of you. I love that you all came up to me and said hi. So, so much fun. Next party happening very soon, so stay tuned right here for announcements about that. If you are in LA, please come out and see me DJ. It's so fun. And if you like this podcast, I think you'll like my DJ style too. It's kind of the same thing in DJ form or whatever. I am going to skip once again reading reviews from Apple Podcasts today just because we again have a really substantive episode coming up. So, I'll just say, please continue to rate, review Pop Pantheon on Apple Podcasts and wherever you listen to podcasts. So many people are doing it. It's really helping the show stay higher in the Apple Podcasts rankings, and thus more people are finding the show. And that's good news for everybody, I think. So rate, review, subscribe, and I will get back to doing my quintessential on-air readings of the ratings and reviewings very soon. Follow us on social media at Pop Pantheon Pod and me at DJ L-O-U-I-E-X-I-V on both Instagram and Twitter and hop in our Discord channel. Discord channel super poppin' as usual. And I definitely would love to hear what everybody thinks about our Beyonce series. What do you think about Beyonce? What are you excited about when it comes to Renaissance? What are your favorite past Beyonce eras? What do you think she's got in store for us with this? era in terms of visuals, movies, is there tour coming up? We're all having a lot of fun speculating and sharing and talking about Beyonce and talking about other stuff as well, relevant pop topics. Lizzo's album has been a hot topic of debate lately. Anyway, so just get in there. We'd love to see you all in the Discord. And check out Spotify playlist for this and every episode in the show notes of this episode. Oh, and all links, as I mentioned above, including for the Discord, will be in the show notes and also linked on social media. So that's that on that. I want to get into this week's episode. This is part two of our four-part Beyonce series. Last week was Destiny's Child, as I'm sure you know. This week, we'll cover the first 10 years or so of Beyonce's solo career, starting with Dangerously in Love through four and her first appearance at the Super Bowl. And it's a fascinating look back. I think at a time in Beyonce's career where she was one of a bunch of pop stars. She was obviously huge. She was super successful. She was definitely in the A-list of pop stardom for her era, but it was a period of time where she was more beholden, I think, to regular pop star expectations and living hit to hit on some level. So it's an interesting look back at a period before Beyonce kind of ascended into something grander than a pop star. So let's get into it. This was one of my favorite episodes to record in the podcast history. So here it is, Beyonce Part 2. When Beyoncé left Destiny's Child to embark on her storied solo career in the early 2000s, there was certainly no guarantee that it would work. In fact, the odds were stacked pretty heavily against her. For every Diana Ross, there are the remains of literally scores of girl group solo career ambitions that crashed and burned spectacularly once they left the comfy confines of the crew. But Beyoncé, as now obviously goes without saying, wasn't just any uppity, run-of-the-mill girl group star. 
Even if it wasn't exactly clear to the general public when she struck out on her own following Destiny's Child's third album, 2001 Survivor, I think it's safe to say that Beyonce herself was always clear and ready to do whatever it took to realize her incredibly lofty ambitions and reach her pop icon, and excuse me for saying this, Destiny. Beyonce's solo career began in earnest with a series of film appearances and Lucy singles that offered only a sliver of the supernova in the making. There was the 2001 hip-hopera Carmen on MTV, which adopted the 1875 opera into a contemporary hip-hop and B music video era extravaganza, with B in the title role. Most importantly, there was the third installment of the mega-successful Austin Powers franchise, 2002's Goldmember, in which Beyonce portrayed Foxy Cleopatra, a riff on the blaxploitation era on-film persona of Pam Greer, and the soundtrack to which contained her first solo single, the funky Neptunes produced Work It Out. What truly set Beyonce's solo career in motion, though, were a pair of collaborations with her future husband, Jay-Z, then the most successful rapper on the planet. First was her appearance on his number four single, 2002's 03 Bonnie and Clyde, a slinky, sexy record which found the couple positing themselves as outlaws on the run, living dangerously but sustained by their devotion and commitment to their enduring, if destructive, love. The second was the lead single of her first solo record, 2003's Dangerously in Love, a pop song so explosive that over the course of just under four minutes, it single-handedly obliterated any doubts about Beyonce's solo endeavors, nearly eclipsed the memory of Destiny's Child's entire discography in the process, and once and for all heralded the arrival of a pop idol for the ages. That song, of course, was Crazy in Love, a blaring Shy Lights horn sampling stomper that seamlessly melded Pop's past, present, and future into one euphoric ode to lust gone berserk, all anchored, of course, by Beyonce's signature, just the side of unhinged virtuosity and the rhapsodic chemistry between B and J. Crazy in Love spent eight weeks atop the Hot 100, is considered to this day to be one of the greatest pop songs ever made, and officially sent the rocket ship that would be Beyonce's career into the stratosphere. In June of 2003, Beyonce released Dangerously in Love, an R&B record that largely celebrated the ecstatic nature of new love, but nonetheless found her exploring numerous different musical aesthetics and pop star guises. Following Crazy in Love, Dangerously spun off three more smash hit singles, the electro dancehall banger Baby Boy featuring Sean Paul, which spent nine weeks at number one, the sexy Donna Summer sampling Naughty Girl, which hit number three, and the supple R&B slow jam Me, Myself, and I, yet another in Beyonce's growing collection of infidelity anthems, which hit number four. Dangerously sold 11 million copies worldwide and made Beyonce one of the early aughts most intriguing new pop figures. After returning to Destiny's Child, for one final go-around, 2004's Destiny Fulfilled, Beyoncé filmed a high-profile role in the big-screen adaptation of the Broadway musical Dreamgirls, in which she fittingly portrayed Dina Jones, a Diana Ross cipher who, get this, leaves her successful girl group to ruthlessly pursue solo success. Her sophomore album, 2006's B-Day, was initially posited as a funneling of Dina's emotions and reactions to being cheated on by her husband. And, contrary to her 
now widely understood meticulous approach was recorded in just a few weeks. The resulting record was both her most terse and loose to date, a 37-minute burst of funk and soul and hip-hop bombast which found Beyonce pushing towards the rougher edges of her influences and her pop star persona and steering enticingly away from conventional pop song structures and melodies. B-Day also found Beyonce mining the darker underbelly of Love Gone Sour, with songs that often dealt in emotional distance, unbalanced gender dynamics, and of course, in now classic B fashion, lies, paranoia, infidelity, betrayal, and revenge. While B-Day debuted with over half a million copies in its first week when it was released in September, the first two singles, the funky Crazy in Love sequel Deja Vu and the operatically livid skeletal hip-hop track Ring the Alarm were both relative underperformers. It was the third single, however, the mid-tempo country R&B ballad Irreplaceable about, what else, dumping a no-good-for-nothing bugaboo that became the album's signature hit, spending 10 weeks in the Hot 100's pole position. B-Day's stature has only grown with time and is now a fan favorite record with many devotees considering it to be her greatest. Notably, it was also her first swing at a visual album, a concept she would refine later in her career in which every song came complete with a music video and helped solidify Beyonce not just as a chart topper, but also a more all-encompassing pop cultural phenomenon. But her third record, 2008's I Am Sasha Fierce, a double album that houses some of her most notable hits, felt largely like a reaction to B-Day's experiments and very relative commercial shortcomings. Here, Beyonce siphoned off her pop persona into two parts. I Am, a record that claimed to represent the quote-unquote real Beyonce and featured largely broad, almost anodyne pop love ballads that gestured very loudly, although not always convincingly, towards capital V vulnerability and the sounds of contemporary pop radio. The second, supposedly an expression of her alter ego, the thrillingly possessed superhuman onstage performer whom she dubbed Sasha Fierce, featured music that dabbled in dance pop, aggressive hip-hop styles, and contained some light continuations of B-Day's sparer funk aesthetics. I Am Sasha Fierce did its job, once again sending numerous Beyonce singles into the top reaches of the Hot 100. There was the country pop of If I Were a Boy, which peaked at number three, the sweeping Love is Religion ballad Halo, which peaked at number five, and the electro-pop Fantasia Sweet Dreams, which peaked at number ten. Most notably, though, was the lead single from the Sasha Fierce disc, the enchantingly bizarre Single Ladies Put a Ring on It, a sparse syncopated bounce track that finds B, or excuse me, Sasha, essentially demanding in the confines of a sassy, delightful schoolyard chant that her man either wife her up or get the fuck out. Single Ladies, powered in part by its now quintessential music video, essentially a black and white one-shotter of Beyonce and two dancers doing Bob Fosse-esque choreography that was replicated on the internet so many times that it essentially invented TikTok, spent four weeks at number one, and stands to this day as perhaps Beyonce's signature hit. I Am Sasha Fierce sold over 8 million copies worldwide, and while it was one of Beyonce's biggest commercial wins, it also represented the end of something. Namely, it felt like the last time Beyonce attempted to play the role of conventional radio-chasing starlet, and, however gingerly, prompted her move into something much grander. 
following this album cycle, B did something she hadn't done since the beginning of her days with Destiny's Child, taking an almost three-year hiatus from releasing music. During this period, she appeared as a feature on Lady Gaga's hit Telephone, but more importantly, she took time to, in her own words, live life and become inspired again. Even more pertinently, Beyonce also fired her father Matthew as her manager, a role he had occupied since the mid-90s, and seemed to signal a moment where Beyonce took full creative and commercial control of her career and artistry. When she returned in 2011 with her fourth album, the aptly titled Four, it was clear that her priorities had changed quite a bit. While the lead single, Run the World, felt like an obvious swing at a trendy EDM-style single, then pop music's Lingua Franca, the rest of the record was largely uninterested in anything resembling pop radio fodder. Four was slow and languid, unbothered and strikingly low-key. It functioned largely as an idiosyncratic exploration of black music's past, from Prince-style ballads to Mary Jane Girls-esque mid-tempo yacht R&B groovers to Fela Kuti's Afrobeats and Stevie Wonder's pristine, rapturous soul pop. Mostly, it was a glorious showcase for Beyonce's truly bravura vocal performances, gorgeously refined, dynamized, and deepened over the course of the previous 15 years. Four was not a huge seller compared with her previous work. It moved about half of what Sasha Fierce did worldwide, but it was received rapturously by critics and seemed to herald a new era of Beyonce, one less concerned with centrist cyborg-esque pop stardom and much more boldly unconventional. In 2013, Beyonce headlined the Super Bowl halftime show in a performance that's widely considered to be one of the best to ever grace that stage. She ripped through most of her solo hits and also brought out Destiny's Child, all of which seemed to amount to something of a career capstone, a send-off to her peak years as pop's star du jour, and into perhaps a still wonderful if smaller in scale next decade. That would have been all well and good, and if Beyonce's run of central pop relevance ended there, she'd certainly still be remembered as a great pop megastar. But of course, no one had any idea what she had in store for her next act. Here with me to talk the first decade of Beyonce's solo career is author, journalist, and pop pantheon returning champ, Julianne Escobedo Shepard. Okay, so I am here once again with journalist and author, repeat offender on pop pantheon, Julianne Escobedo Shepard. Julianne, welcome back to the show. Return of the Mac. Okay, we won't do that, but um, <laughs> thank you. I am so glad to be here. I love chatting with you. I love chatting with you too. And I feel like you're the person I have to call up when we pull out the big guns. Like when we've got to get, <laughs> when we got to talk about someone that's just absolutely top of the pantheon. Ah. There's only one person to call and it's you. <laughs> Honestly, one of the most fun, long, but fun recording sessions I ever had was cutting that Rihanna episode with you. And I will never forget how much you maintained your energy and your good cheer through, I would say, four hours of talking about Rihanna straight. Look, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> I created an entire column about chronicling her every tiny move. So obviously I could talk about her for hours, but also energy, like they used to say at hip hop concerts, <laughs> the <laughs> the energy you give us, we're giving you back. So Oh, wow. <laughs> you know, it's mutual. <laughs> I really appreciate that. I try my best to stay energetic, if nothing else, in yes. these trying times. <laughs> so, okay, we're here to talk about the first, let's say, 10 years of Beyonce's solo career. 
So I want to posit something to you that's been on my mind in my recent sort of going back through all of her work in preparation for this conversation, which is that I almost have gotten the vibe that Beyonce's entire solo career has been one performance art piece exploring the trials, tribulations, ecstaticness, disappointment of a monogamous long-term heterosexual relationship. When I was going back through her work this time, and this is something we talked about a little bit in the Destiny's Child episode, there are some very tried and true Beyonce themes that get revisited over and over and over again in her work, beginning really with Destiny's Child, but really beginning in fully realized form on Dangerously in Love. And 95% of them center around this relationship that she has been in since her first record. And I was actually texting with our mutual yesterday, Rich Dozwiak, and I said, is there any other pop star that we've ever had in the history of pop music where they've been with one person through the entire swing of their pop career and we've almost gotten periodic check-ins on this relationship through their music. Yeah. And I do think that that is somewhat unique to Beyonce, both the relationship and her artistic obsession with using her music to unpack the ecstaticness of that and how much she loves that and how much freedom being in a monogamous relationship gives her with her sexuality, with expressing herself, mm-hmm. and also the common theme in Beyonce's music, which is lies, mistrust, infidelity, yeah. imbalanced gender dynamics in a heterosexual monogamous relationship, and the so forth. What do you make of that idea? Oh my gosh. Well, I am not a psychologist, but I do think this is a very good and fascinating read on it. And I think that if we're going to talk about it, we also have to bring her father into it. Yes. Who is allegedly of a similar temperament relationship wise. He was allegedly philandering on her mother and also because he was such a driving force of her career from her youth on and then you hit dangerously in love and that's all about her brand new ecstatic love with jay-z but also it ends with daddy (laughs) so i don't want to reduce this to daddy issues whatsoever because i think that is like rote and cliche and used a lot to demean and belittle women and their output Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. i do think what makes it so interesting and what makes her music so resonant is that if you pull back a little bit and don't look at it specifically as autobiographical, but she, through her own experience and through her artistic freedom, I guess, is not just exploring this one single monogamous relationship of her own, but she's sort of mapping out what it is to be a powerful, talented Black woman in this specific era of patriarchy in which she existed. And I think that, you know, even though she's singing about love and about heartbreak, there is this underlying pushing back on expectations that, you know, we can read were definitely put on her. I mean, of course, they were put on her as a famous pop star from when she was a teenager, but also are expected in monogamous heterosexual relationships, very few of which even now, I think, manage to break out of those expectations. So it's a confluence of 
her personal relationship travails being sort of a mirror back to what happens in U.S. society in the early 2000s to now. Right. And which I think in part owes to how popular she is because it's so relatable. (laughs) Right. And also I think in Beyonce's telling of either her personal story or as you're talking about, maybe a broader story about our culture and maybe more specifically, I think, Black American culture, Mm -hmm. there is a couple of sub-threads there that feel utterly singular to her that I think tie it back to something perhaps more autobiographical, one of which you just touched on, which is the intertwining nature of love and wealth accumulation, which is one of her tried-and-true themes dating back to Bills, 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 Independent Woman. Many Destiny's Child songs deal with this theme of both a woman needing to have her own money, but also a man also needing to be making and having his own money, Mm -hmm. and that being essentially ground zero for any discussion of a relationship with Beyonce. Also, and even better... Making money together. Making money together. (laughs) Starting with O3, Bonnie, and Clyde up to right this very second. (laughs) Exactly. There's no disentangling the power of their love as a business dynamic from a personal dynamic, at least in our experience of it. I have no idea what the reality of it is behind the scenes, but that is how it's been presented to us. So many times when Beyonce is celebrating their love, it is in the context of wealth accumulation and power Mm -hmm. accumulation of the dynamic. So that's one thing that none of us will ever understand, probably. (laughs) That feels very single to her. The second is this very... Very intriguing and idiosyncratic take on feminism that mm-hmm. is at once modern and forward thinking and extraordinarily regressive and conservative, mm-hmm. which is something that defines a lot of the work, actually, especially in the era that we're about to talk about, yes. where Beyonce hadn't quite yet, I think, evolved into the thinker and artist that she is today and has, I think, post self-titled album, had a much more expansive view of what feminism means to her. Still idiosyncratic, but slightly different than it was in this particular era, where she very repeatedly, in the context of being Pop's signature feminist, mm-hmm. talks about her desire to be in traditional gender roles. Yeah. And it's a fascinating dichotomy that I think makes her really interesting because it is so human to hold these almost oppositional views in your personal life and to put that into your art. And we're going to get into various examples where I see this playing out. But overall, what we're talking about is themes that comprise the vast majority of her music. This is what Beyonce's discography really is about, if you were going to sum it up. And I think it'll be fun for us to get to unpack that a little bit and the evolution of all of those things through this conversation. Yeah, I agree. You just reminded me, I attended that fabled conversation at the New School between Bell Hooks and Laverne Cox, in which everything that you just said about her presentation of feminism in her music was debated passionately between the two. And I think if she weren't such a human about that aspect. There's an entire cottage industry like Roxane Gay, (laughs) bad feminist of like accepting the fact that none of us are perfect in a time when feminism almost felt like you had to be perfect and then put that on a billionaire black woman, then it all gets very complex and people have very strong reactions to it 
for better and for worse. And then it just gets into like, we're back in the 70s. And it's like, <laughs> anyway. You know what's really <laughs> interesting get... about what you're saying is Beyonce's calling card and perhaps her Achilles heel is her perfectionism. I mean, yeah. this is in terms of the way that she presents her art and her performance and her virtuosic talent, that is always both elevated by and i think in certain instances as we can discuss perhaps hindered by her utter pursuit of perfectionism and yeah. presentation of perfectionism so i think it's interesting to think about the cracks here maybe unintentionally being in her worldview making her human in a yeah. way that she won't let herself be in terms of the presentation of the art or something yes, like that. Yes, 100%. I fully yeah. agree. You know, yeah, she that has that protective shell around her and she has to, honestly, because if she didn't, I couldn't deal with it. <laughs> um, 100%. She's <laughs> the consummate celebrity in the sense that she knows how to wield her image and to shape it and she has probably, I don't know, but I would imagine has made a lot of personal sacrifices in pursuit of yeah. that wielding, molding, image-making, myth-making. Yeah. And I was saying to you off mic, that was something that Brittany and I got into on the Dusty Child episode. It's like, the Beyonce myth is so tight and so hard to find the cracks in. You know, when you get the little moment like the elevator or you get her firing Latoya and Latavia, like these little cracks where you mm -hmm. see some of the phrase. They're so few and far between and that's why we eat them up because I think yeah. she and I think early in her career, the father, Matthew, have done such an impeccable job of creating the myth of Beyonce and she has yeah. lived up to it so effectively throughout her yeah. career. So let's rewind. I want to start this conversation talking about actually your personal memories because we have just done an episode on Destiny's Child. Beyonce's solo career begins in the period following their third record, Survivor, and before their fourth record, Destiny Fulfilled. This is around 2001, 2002. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, following Survivor, what do you remember thinking about Beyonce's solo endeavors? Did you feel her solo success was inevitable? Did you get a sense of how monumental this was all going to be? No. <laughs> <laughs> I all did right, not, next question. <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't I didn't get a sense of how monumental it would be, right? So yeah. it was always clear that she was the lead singer and she was the one with the powerhouse voice mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. she was front and center. But how often do lead singers break off of girl groups and become superheroes, basically? Not very often, almost never. It was clear though. I think in the early 2000s that she was heading towards something bigger. I could never have predicted how big it would be. I remember Carmen, a hip opera. So Carmen, a hip opera is really, I think, the first thing that we're seeing that is her alone. And it's her first non-video performance without mm. the rest of them. And just to fill everybody in, Carmen, a hip opera was an MTV special movie musical that essentially adopted the opera Carmen into a turn of the aughts hip hop and R&B extravaganza. Is that an accurate depiction? It is. In which Beyonce portrayed the title Carmen, character. yeah. Carmen, oh, stop playing around, all right? Get dressed, come on, we have to go.
So it's yes. her and then Mackay Pfeiffer and Most Def is in it. Right. And the whole thing is wrapped, right? So like rather than lines, they're wrapping their lines, which I think presaged Hamilton. But anyway. Hey, <laughs> now that's a bar. <laughs> like, like we I would live- take Carmen a hip hopper over Hamilton, but that's just me. Agreed. Like they should put that <laughs> shit on Broadway. But anyway, it's the first time we're seeing her sort of as an individual and as someone who has ambitions greater than just a music career. And at that point, it becomes apparent, no disrespect to anyone else in Destiny's Child, but it becomes <laughs> pretty apparent that they're becoming more of the background. Yes. That's a backup, but definitely the background. She's the powerhouse mm-hmm. voice. She's the one you really not only can hear the most and gets most of the leads, but you're kind of listening listening for because of the quality of her voice. How would you describe the quality of her voice? There's this thing in choreography where you hit the choreography, right? Where you like hit all the notes and that's what she's doing with her voice. She is precise. She's eating it up. She's delivering it with passion, not just feeling the emotion, but she is doing everything in her power to make sure that you know that she feels the emotion and that you're also feeling the emotion. And it's clear by Survivor that she's a diva in the making. And I will never, ever use the word diva as a derogatory term. Just Oh, no. (laughs) Okay. Diva is the female version of a hustler. Exactly. (laughs) I would say everything you said, and in this early phase, two words come to mind, one of which carries forth, the other I think has been enjoyably roughened around the edges. The tenacity of her ambition is present in her singing. Yes. And there's a butteriness to it, which is a really Mm. nice compliment. And I think speaks to the training that Matthew put them through and the real expertise she has as a singer. There's both a scatting stankness to it and at the same time a sort of virtuosic perfection and she can melt all over these songs without losing the staccato-ness when it's needed, without losing, as you said, this sort of syncopation, the hitting the marks at every turn, the perfect execution of whatever the song calls for. And it's really the gusto at the end of the day that I think separates her from the other women in the group. You can tell how much she wants it. And I have always felt that when I listen to even in the Destiny's Child songs. The ambition is present in the work. And that's not something you can teach someone. Like We might have not seen it for Beyonce at this time, per se, but I think she always saw it for herself. Yeah, I agree. And something you said of describing her voice, I'm paraphrasing, but you basically said like stank virtuosity is like the perfect (laughs) description (laughs) of her music. I was looking at write-ups and criticism about Destiny's Child and Beyonce in 2001. And there's a whole thing in the New York Times magazine in 2001 that's basically that she is the reason that anyone cares about Destiny's Mm -hmm. Child. And then there's a really good, fascinating cover story in a 2001 issue of Vibe written by Lola Oganaki. And I was reading it and Lola writes, if Destiny's Child are famous for their no-nonsense lyrics... 
They're certainly infamous for group lineup changes that would shock even Diana Ross. And Vibe cheekily on the cover has Destiny's Child dressed up like the Supremes with Beyonce as Diana Ross years before Dreamgirls was even in the ether. Interesting. (laughs) Yeah. That's almost like chilling. It is, right? (laughs) But it it shows like how much everyone kind of knew all this stuff was going on. Yes, for sure. So let's talk about Beyonce's first toast steps into her solo career, the Austin Powers movie, and I think most pertinently, 03 Bonnie and Clyde Mm -hmm. with her future husband, Jay-Z. How does Beyonce start to position herself in these other projects that's differentiating herself from her work that she did with Destiny's Child? And how does she begin to establish like whatever the contours are going to be of the Beyonce solo project through these kind of early forays? So the big thing, obviously, is that she's on her own and she is determined to show everyone that she is her own artist of her own caliber and that she can do everything. And I think the Austin Powers movie was really important because I think despite the astronomical fame, I guess, and reaches of Destiny's Child, pop music at that time was still super segregated. And I think that by being in the Austin Powers movie, she became more of a household name with mainstream movie-going audiences, you mm-hmm, know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. If it isn't Austin Powers... I'm sorry? You got a lot of nerve dragging your job, white ass in here. I don't believe we've met. It's me, Foxy. Foxy Cleopatra. Long time no see. That puts her on the radar of a lot more people. Mm -hmm. Then with Work It Out, she's like, oh, by the way, you just found out who I am. Here is a funk song for you with me in a Tina Turner dress and some horns, and you're going to know who I am. And I will say that I think Work It Out is not my favorite song of hers. I don't think it's that great, but for the time, it really was like Beyonce is doing something other than skittering R&B shit. She's appealing to a broader audience, maybe an older audience. Here I am. I don't need all those other girls. And I think, as you pointed out or alluded to with the Tina Turner dress, one thing Beyonce Mm -hmm. begins to do in the myth-making phase of this early part of her career is positioning herself as one of these legendary pop divas, especially black pop divas. So we already talked about Diana Ross and how she's potentially modeling her pivot from girl group front woman to solo career off of Diana's model on some level. I also think Work It Out is a fascinating piece of music, not because, as you mentioned, that it's a particularly good piece of music, (laughs) for a few reasons. One, no one remembers that this is the debut Beyonce single. We all think it's crazy in love and everybody's wrong. So should we let people believe that though? Because no, I don't know. I, I, no, I'm not here to lie to my listeners. Beyonce's first solo single was a flop. So yes. let's get into that. Everybody and that's down great. on Normani right now, yeah. it's happened to the it's best true. of them. So that's one. Two is you mentioned it's a funk single. Beyonce's 
solo music is very explicitly situated sort of at a nexus point between R&B and pop and hip hop's past and present and future. I think Mm -hmm. that that's something she continuously explores in her music is lots of nods towards the past and intermittently futurism in terms of what she's thinking about, but almost more of a positioning in music of the past. I mean, if you think about Crazy in Love, if you think about the Bob Fosse choreography of Single Ladies, if you Mm -hmm. think about most of the music on Four, if you think about B-Day, which is essentially like a giant funk fest, a lot of this music is throwback soul and R&B music. And I think that that is a really interesting pivot from the Dark Child and Kevin Briggs productions of For Destiny's Child and Poke and Tone and whomever was working with them where those were very futuristic sounding R&B songs that were more in the mold of the other stuff that Dark Child was doing, which was extremely innovative work with Brandy and Jennifer Lopez and Michael Jackson and whomever. So I think that was an important thing. This song didn't sound like a Destiny's Child song, which I think is maybe the most interesting thing about Work It Out. On the flip side of that, I think O3 Bonnie and Clyde is a really important piece of this because Beyonce's solo endeavor essentially begins where it ends, which is with Jay Z by her side. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you ready, B? Let's go get him. And I feel like that is so powerful to think about. O3 Bonnie and Clyde represents obviously their first collaboration. It's a wonderful song, also produced by Kanye West, another thing maybe people don't yes. realize, and situates them as the couple that they're going to be, this couple in love that just have each other against the world, which is like a sort of theme that they constantly return to. It is incredibly, I don't know if the word is moving, but it's definitely astounding that that was the first presentation of Beyonce, given what we know about the role that this relationship will continue to play in her career. It's really true. Revisiting this honestly kind of freaked me out a little bit. Yeah, it's scary. (laughs) There is something so spine-tingling about that song being the launchpad of her solo career. And I think the other element that both Jay brings and that song highlights is Beyonce's very fervent and consistent positioning of herself in hip-hop culture. Beyonce has never just been interested in being a pop star, a mainstream pop star, from Destiny's Child through to this moment, through every single one of her solo projects. Beyonce also positions herself as a rapper and positions herself as a part and parcel with hip hop culture. Yes. And I think that's another very important element of O3 Bonnie and Clyde. Well, but not just that. I mean, she may not be putting crate digging treatises out here like Questlove <laughs> or whatever, but I think that it does get overlooked because of the pop starness of it all, that she is a music nerd and she's a student of music and she knows her music. I think you're right. I think with the funk single and with her choices early on in her solo career, she really wanted to reflect that within the constraints of hip hop culture. And if you recall, when O3 Bonnie and Clyde came out, this is the beginning of when hip hop and R&B are fusing together inextricably forever. Mm -hmm. And it was both prescient, but also I think at the time there were infinite rumors that they were dating, right? And that was part of... Unconfirmed, very important to throw in there that they held that from us aside from on record for years into her solo career. Years, years. Mm -hmm. That also signifies a point where people's obsession with pop stars 
personal lives starts to really become what it is now in the new millennium. That narrative, I think, drove that song. And it was only furthered with Crazy in Love. But I think they saw how it did. And I think they knew it. And that's where the making money together thing comes in. Like yeah, They obviously right. like collaborating with each other <laughs> as artists. They sound great together. But they also knew from that song's popularity that they were going to make some money off of this shit. They had power <laughs> together. There's something about the ultra femininity of Beyonce and the mm -hmm. sort of prototypically masculine presentation of Jay-Z that probably makes their personal relationship tick as well, but also works beautifully on record together. Yes. And like... The whole thing, too, at that time, she was the good girl. That's why it was right. so astonishing. Destiny's Child was, I don't want to say they were chaste, but they were very proper and very withholding. And then here's Jay-Z, who's mm. basically, his whole thing is how many hoes, <laughs> you right. know? And then here's this good girl from Texas with the most beautiful manners. Christian. Christian. And she's about to mm -hmm. go fucking shoot up a bank or whatever with this guy. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know what? It's so funny, but so true. And it speaks to another thing that I think is a very pertinent ground layer for Dangerously in Love, which is Beyonce's monogamous relationship with Jay-Z frees her in her yeah. work. And I have thought of it more in sexuality. Like she is able to be a freak on song in the context of this relationship, not in other contexts. That's why it didn't happen in Dusty's yeah. Child. But once Beyonce enters into this dynamic, she feels a certain freedom to be a naughty girl, not without the relationship in place, which I find yeah. absolutely fascinating because it speaks to our earlier conversation, which is kind of her conservative traditional value system that yeah. I think continues to tick to this day. But you're also making me think this also creates an avenue, the relationship for the rapper, the bad girl, for that sort of part of her persona to live freely. The harder edged part of her persona comes out as a result of the relationship as well. So there's right. a certain chasm that opens up in her artistry as a result of the love. And I think that's a really important aspect also to set up our next topic, which is Dangerously in Love, because this album is essentially a almost little girl's fantasy version or hopes for what being in love might actually be like. Mm. Although cut with some other layers that we're going to talk about. There's almost a fairy tale perception of what monogamous love is. She is over the moon excited about being in this relationship. If it's possible to say she wanted anything more than superstardom, I think maybe what she wants even more than that is mm -hmm. this relationship. Yeah, I think there's two prongs to that. You made the fascinating point about Jay-Z giving her license to be a freak. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I'm like, is Destiny's Child part of purity culture? <laughs> but if you think about the early 2000s purity culture and this hold of that millennial Christianity, it was really all about women saving themselves. She's in this secret, not confirmed, committed, mm -hmm. monogamous relationship. She's like, okay, well, like, maybe this is the guy that I'm gonna marry. Mm -hmm. So here we go. But with Dangerously in Love, I think you're right that it does have a fantasy aspect about first love to it. But also, she was 21 years old when she wrote it. I think about when I was in love when I was 21, thinking I was going to marry my boyfriend and like, nah, <laughs> you know. Right. But that's what I'm saying. Yeah, that's exactly. That's exactly my point. <laughs> if we're taking the framework that her musical oeuvre is 
the stages of this relationship or the stages of a relationship or something like that. I think perhaps unintentionally, because I do think it was 100% genuine that she felt this way. Yeah. Beyonce viewed love as this bombastic end point to something. Like, I think she felt like she had unlocked the Holy Grail. And I think that Mm. that's what this record celebrates. And I think we should start by talking about her debut single, Crazy in Love, or not her debut single. Sorry, I've already spoiled that. Her <laughs> second single, <laughs> Crazy, or third single, Crazy third in Love. Single. Also, we skipped Summertime, and I think we, we were okay it's with that. It's fine if we skip Summertime. <laughs> <laughs> I'm fascinated by the establishing Beyonce hit essentially being a totally overblown, almost psychotic ode to love. Yeah. I like to stare so deep in your eyes. I touch on you more and more. Yes, I mean, the whole premise is just the dumb shit you'll do when you're completely infatuated with someone. And it's, it's obviously not love, it's purely infatuation and definitely works perfectly with Rich Harrison's bombastic production and the Shylight mm-hmm. sample. But together it is actually explosive. It's explosive. I remember the first time I heard it in a club, the whole place literally exploded. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is the greatest song of the 21st century. Yeah. It is such an incredible expression of the glorious melodrama of Beyonce's artistry at this moment yeah. in her career. And also just a gorgeous meeting of pop's past and present and future, which is why I feel like this song continues to be so powerful and well-regarded is that, Mm -hmm. as you mentioned, it's like you've got this booming over-the-top Shy Light sample that I don't think a lot of artists could have held their own against. You know, that is a huge sample. So you've got this sort of connection to pop and R&B's past in the production, and then you've got this totally modern hip-hop jangling drum production, the breakdown, the uh uh-oh, uh-oh breakdown. And also the way that she's singing is almost unhinged. Like there is this feeling of true madness in the song that is why it is so much fun to listen to because it literally sounds like she is losing her fucking mind on this song. Honestly, it sounds like she's ziplining or something. (laughs) She's like, because the uh uh-oh part, like you could argue that the uh uh-oh is like a mild sense of her subconscious. 
Right. <laughs> giving her some self-awareness. Ooh, I like that. I like that. <laughs> where she's like, oh shit, no, you gotta yes. hold on, bro. Like, this is not yes. gonna work. That is so accurate. But if you're ziplining, which I don't know why I thought of this. I've never ziplined. I hope to one day. But <laughs> if you're ziplining and you're like, this is so fun, but also holy fuck, what if right. I hit a tree? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't think she cared. There's abandon no. in this. She yes. wouldn't have cared if she hit the tree. I'm not playing myself. Baby, I don't care. I don't care. <laughs> I mean, that is one of the greatest moments in pop history. And it's very fitting that this is the debut single for this particular artist in a way that it wouldn't necessarily have been for someone else because I think celebrating love and also being taken out by love, which is why I think Dangerously in Love is a fascinating contrast of an album title to being crazy in love because the amount that Beyonce is obsessed with being in love is also her downfall ultimately. And I think that that's so crazy that that's all captured right here in this opening salvo. Damn, I feel like you have an academic paper. Beyonce's <laughs> Beyonce's career as the arc of relationship. Mm-hmm. Honestly, this should be your life's work. I, it might be. It is. You're partaking in my life's work as we record this episode. So there's very few arrivals in pop history as iconic and as successful as Crazy in Love. It's one of the most undeniable arrivals for a pop star. This is the superlative pop star arrival moment. Yes. You had emailed me about when did she become who she is now? And I would argue that she became who she is now in that song. That song is the blueprint of everything she does today. And part of why it's so explosive is not just because it's a fucking fantastic song, but because it showed us who she would be for the next 20 fucking years, dude. Like, (laughs) (laughs) she's standing in her divitude, right? Mm -hmm. She's standing Mm -hmm. confidently in her divitude with it. Without Destiny's Child, she has the freedom to fucking own the song. And she talked about it. She talked about the freedom of writing this album. She was a very, ostensibly, a very egalitarian (laughs) person in the studio. (laughs) Allegedly. (laughs) At least with Kelly. (laughs) She's free to do things like that bridge. Mm -hmm. And she's like, fuck yeah, I am doing my own thing. And I was thinking about it. It's not a perfect analogy, but it's almost like Janet Jackson in control because she is free from the things that were constraining her before. And so she can be herself. She only has to worry about her own image as opposed to the collective image. So she has this freedom. And then the other part of the blueprint is as you, oh my God, the blueprint. Holy shit. (laughs) The other part of this song being the blueprint for her career is that your thesis that this is her and Jay again. Right. This solidifies their union, artistic and alleged or unconfirmed love Mm -hmm. far more than Bonnie and Clyde because you're like, oh, she is definitely singing about Jay. They come out in the VMAs and you're like, oh, these two are fucking. Yes. (laughs) Let's go. Oh, 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 oh,
So obviously it goes without saying that Crazy in Love goes to number one where it spends multiple weeks. Beyonce, I think, essentially never looks back from there in terms mm-hmm. of her solo career. She releases Dangerously in Love later in 2003. Let's talk about the rest of this record. And I kind of want to freestyle it with you a little bit instead of going in order. What else is going on on Dangerously in Love? I started to get at some of the themes that I'm seeing in it, which is a celebration of the beginnings of a monogamous love affair. But there's other layers to this music too. I'd love to hear in your words, like how you see the themes and sounds of Dangerously in Love, the album. I think the thing that sticks out most to me is the embrace of sexuality and her own sexuality and expressing it in a way that, especially at that time, was pretty frowned upon, honestly, unless you're Lil Kim or Foxy Brown or whatever. But like, Or Britney in her own weird way. Or Britney in her own way, but Britney was a little bit playing into the schoolgirl fantasy and all of that. This is Beyonce kind of starting to own it. It's like she's a little coquettish, obviously, but she is learning who she is as a sexual being simultaneously as she is celebrating this monogamous relationship. And then at the same time, she is honoring this long tradition of black women performers all the way back to the blues where it's like songs about love songs about self-assurance songs about you hurt me and songs about maybe we're gonna fuck Mm -hmm. (laughs) and i think that she's always been very aware of her position in this arc of american black women performers Mm -hmm. and you really start to see her vision for this there yeah and i think she does do an effective job as you said Mm -hmm. i think one of the obvious notable examples of this is Naughty Girl, which samples yeah. Love to Love You Baby by Donna Summer, which was another mm-hmm. example of a black woman boldly presenting her sexuality in a way that many black women before her had not. That was a very astute choice on Beyonce's behalf. And she deepens this project of positioning herself in black musical history with samples of the Brothers Johnson on Be With You, which samples Strawberry Letter 23, and also samples Bootsy Collins, I'd Rather Be With You, on Mm -hmm. that song as well. What she interestingly also does in terms of like positioning herself in this black diaspora of music at the time is there's the two signature dance hall reggae tracks, one of which is Naughty Girl and the other is the second single, Baby Boy, which is essentially an electro dance hall song of sorts. It's interesting, too, to think about what's going on at the time. You'd mentioned it earlier, but like a lot of hip hop leaning R&B at the time was very breathy voice, really traditional gender role stuff. Like I'm thinking of Tamia and Fabulous. Really like 
and then Ashanti to a degree. And then you've got J-Lo, who is powerful, but her voice isn't a powerhouse. So in that context, she's got this brawlic belt. We used the word bombastic before. I think that that's mm-hmm. a key to this is maybe what you're sort of getting at a little bit. Yeah, bombastic and the boss. The boss, <laughs> she's right. She's developed a taste for being the boss. And then also when she does try that breathy stuff, like on Baby Boy and maybe even a little bit on certain parts of Naughty Girl. She can't do it like those women did it because her voice is too good. (laughs) Right, right, exactly. It still sounds so precise and full. Yeah, or like even Mm -hmm. like Me, Myself, and I, which is this very emotional interior song, Mm -hmm. she's not yielding. There's just something very classic in the tradition of women R&B singers that she brings to the table, maybe without even trying because of the strength of her voice. Yes to all of that, like 100 million percent. And I think it is interesting, as you said, to watch her experiment with the voice because she does utilize it in various different ways on this. You've got the explosive quality of Crazy in Love. We've got the breathy quality of Baby Boy. You've got the sultry almost mini Ripperton vibe that she brings Mm. to both Be With You and Me, Myself, and I. And the other thing is that I feel like she's exploring modes of her ethos. You have, as you said, the boss, right? You have the boss. Mm -hmm. Then on Be With You, you have lyrics like, I'd rather be with you because you hustle hard to take care of me. which kind of continues this tradition of her actually really enjoying being submissive or being taken care of, which is something that she talks about quite a lot. You also have the coquettish chasteness on Yes, which is a song essentially about a man pushing too hard to sleep with her. Yeah her being pissed off that he is not respecting the fact that she's not quote unquote that type of girl. Right. And then I think most importantly in this narrative that I've been laying out here, especially, look, I think there's a way to look at Beyonce's work, as I've said earlier, but I'm going to say it in a slightly different way here. Celebration or exploration of monogamous love, but also of infidelity and of men that have wronged her or lied to her or mistreated her. And Mm -hmm. one long question where she has attempted to make sense of that. Why do men do this? And I sometimes think Lemonade and her ability to link that to intergenerational trauma and to these broader themes was the end point potentially to that question that she was posing in her art through all of this work. Me, Myself, and I is an integral piece of that story where in the midst of all of these songs that are essentially a celebration of her newfound love with Jay-Z is a song that is truly filled with pathos about a man cheating on her. Yeah.
Yeah, I mean, it's almost like the fundamental crux of her feminism, right? The problem with relying on a man to hustle hard to take care of you is that when he's not there, as they say on Love Island, you gotta back yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, and so she has been raised with these traditional hetero mores that are like, you know, this man is going to take care of me. My dad's going to take care of me. And then maybe those infidelity songs that later evolve into empowerment songs are kind of her pulling the wool off of her eyes about what patriarchy actually offers you. Mm, The innocence being stripped away in a sense. Right, right. Because it's like, there is an innocence about this album and there's a naivete Mm -hmm. about what love is. And if that song is about Jay-Z, then it's like, okay, well, here's this older rapper who came up in a completely different way than she did, right. who is known as uh, Lothario. And it's important to note is in the power position in terms of fame at this moment. Yes. I think we might forget that at this time, Jay-Z was maybe the most successful man in music. Yeah. And she was still kind of an upstart. And he's at the pinnacle of his fame. And so, yes, yeah, starting with Bonnie and Clyde and then Crazy in Love, it's just like he's kind of putting her on, which is a little bit laughable now. <laughs> I pulled a quote out from her at the time where she talks about me, myself, and I. And she says, me, myself, and I basically talks about a girl who the guy's not right for her and he's cheating and whatever. And usually women feel stupid and silly and they blame themselves because they've seen all the signs most of the time. But you love the guy, so you don't want to see them go. And in this song, it's a celebration of the breakup. It is an interesting window into her perspective on this that also Mm. feels so prescient of Lemonade. (laughs) I couldn't stop thinking about that. I was just like, I'm haunted by it because starting with Say My Name, there is something that Beyonce taps into on these particular songs that feels so core to Mm -hmm. who she is as a person and an artist. And this is such an important plot point, I feel like, in that particular sub-arc of her artistry. Yeah. Obviously, this record is a monumental success. As we said, Crazy in Love, number one, Baby Boy, number one, Naughty Girl, number three, Me, Myself, and I, number four. That's four top five singles. Sells a bajillion records, goes pretty much all the way in separating Beyonce from Destiny's Child forever, and sets her solo career in motion. Following Dangerously in Love's success, Beyonce does a very unlikely thing, which is she returns to Destiny's Child to record Destiny Fulfilled, their fourth record. We have talked about that on the previous episode and there's three years that elapse between dangerously in love and her second studio album b-day in 2006 in the interim she once again returns to the silver screen in her iconic performance in the pink panther the critically acclaimed oscar-winning steve martin vehicle (laughs) which does give us an excellent beyonce lucy single Check on it, produced by Swiss Beats. One of my favorite fucking Beyonce songs of all time. That song is important because it shows the playful side of her that we didn't really get 
as much on Dangerously in Love. And I think it is the beginning of a tradition of Beyonce songs that are almost rhythmic rap tracks more than their pop songs. Like they're not driven necessarily by melody so much as they're driven by like syncopated rhythms and very spare percussive production. And obviously Swiss Beats is going to play a huge role in the aesthetic palette of B-Day. But I feel like this record is the entry point to that, which is something that she returns to over and over again, which is essentially taking beats from rappers and turning them into Beyonce songs. So Beyonce and Jay-Z in the interim between Dangerously in Love and B-Day confirm their relationship. She also shoots Dreamgirls in this period. Dreamgirls comes out the movie after B-Day drops, but Beyonce essentially assumes the role of a Diana Ross cipher in this movie (laughs) musical. Beyonce frames her second album B-Day numerous times in press leading up to it as an expression of her character's anger at being cheated on and maligned in the music industry. I have always thought that that is very convenient of her, to Mm. frame this record this way because B-Day is a fascinating Beyonce album that looking back feels like one of her most personal to me. I agree. I think that that framing is when she really started to get media trained because she got that Oscar nominated movie (laughs) media training. (laughs) And she's like, let me divert this because at the same time, there's rumors that Jay-Z is cheating on her with Rihanna. (laughs) Oh my God. Now let's get into it because B-Day is a record that she claims she recorded also in two to three weeks, which I think is another important element of it. It's fast. It's loose. It feels almost freestyled. It's funky. Now, let's talk about the music on this record and the themes that she's dealing with on this record. How would you characterize, first of all, the themes that B-Day is approaching? I think the overall main theme is that Beyonce would like to wreck shit. (laughs) It's a lot more about infidelity and more explicit about infidelity. And simultaneously, she's grown up a little bit. She's 25. And she is also more explicit about expressing her sexuality in tandem related possibly Mm -hmm. (laughs) and then also she starts doing the thing which she will continue throughout her career where on b-day she takes those gender roles and she's like fuck this i'm gonna be the man too and all of these things together amount to like you said i think one of the most personal albums that she has but also it's this awesome stew that makes for one of her best if not the best records yes. in her this discography. record is fucking incredible it is so good <laughs> i don't know that she's got a better collection of songs in her discography it is yeah. so terse it's so tight it's so singularly beyonce in a way that neither record on either side of it is throughout i am so taken with the level of anger that she is comfortable displaying on this album. And that's why I brought up the way she couched it in it being about her character. Because as you mentioned, the bitch is fucking lit up, pissed off through this entire album. Yeah, she's really angry. And I think she also realizes how both the music industry and society writ large would view 
her as a very famous Black woman being this angry. And so even though it's a media train answer, it's also an answer to protect her, both her personal life, presumably, allegedly, mm-hmm. <laughs> and also her probably sanity, honestly, and like ability to function as a black woman in U.S. Yes. society. I'm interested also in what you said about the gender role thing, because one thing that's really interesting about this is Jay-Z appears multiple times on this record. So if mm-hmm. this record is maybe subterraneanly about Jay-Z, he appears on the late single Deja Vu, which is one of the only songs on this album that in the vein of Crazy and Love sort of explores this theme of ecstatic love. You've got Sugar Mama and Upgrade You, which I think we should zoom in because they loop back to what you were talking about regarding her very fascinating themes that we've talked about a couple of times now. One is the role that wealth plays in her own power and in her joint power with her boyfriend. And also this interplay where she, as you said, switches gender dynamics. Sugar Mama is essentially a song about how she loves that she can both be a breadwinner and buy her husband things, but also enjoys that she can also take care of him and play the traditional female role at the same time. Upgrade You essentially operates on a similar premise, which is that she is incredibly interested in the fact that she's able to like expand her husband's mind and expand his wealth with her presence. But it has what I find to be one of the most incisive or revealing lines in Beyonce's discography, which is still play my part and let you take the lead role. Believe me. So I'm curious how you receive Beyonce's gender politics on these songs, because as you said, at once she's sort of adopting these masculine guises, but she's always, I find, couching it in these filthy to traditional gender roles that she's clearly very addicted to. Well, I would take that line from Upgrade You and add one, which I think complicates things, which is the line, I can do for you what Martin did for the people, Mm. ran by the man, but the women keep the temple. Uh I think that is her kind of pissed about the gender roles. And Mm. I think she's acknowledging this long tradition of gender roles that she is situating specifically in Black heteronormative experiences. And I don't know, that line is so interesting to me because it's like she's saying like, okay, I'm going to do this, but also fuck this. And also, Mm. we're actually behind the scenes running shit at the temple, right? But Beyonce is not at home running shit at the temple. Beyonce is out there being as successful and 
working woman as any has ever been. Sure, but you could also argue that the temple in like the Martin Luther King. Oh my God, I can't believe it. <laughs> in like the, she said the, it. She's making us do it. Yeah. it's also an incredibly wild line that only she could pull off. Exactly. Like, with a straight face. Yeah. But like, if you take the Martin Luther King analogy to its logical endpoint, you could also argue that the women are doing the most important work. I understand that, but it's still subscribing to the idea that women do a certain kind of work and men do another yeah. kind of work. She says also, I'll be the help wherever you need me. I see your hustle with my hustle. I can keep you focused on your focus. Yeah. I can feed you. It is a very interesting <laughs> window into how she views women and men in relationship. She has a song called Cater to You on Destiny Fulfilled that oh is my essentially God. like, I want to put your slippers on. I want to cook you dinner and I'll keep my body right so that I look like the woman that you married. I mean, don't even get me started on Cater to You. It I is know, like... it's a disturbing song. <laughs> it really is. But I also think it's very revealing because I think it's incredibly earnest. I really think mm -hmm. that she feels that she's able to hold both this sort of like independent woman, quote unquote, feminism that defines her in so many people's eyes, along with this conservative take on men and women in relationships, at least in this period in her career, because it comes up a lot. It really is something that she returns to so, so much in her music. And I find it fascinating that on Sugar Mama, she's both buying him things and she's the Jolly Rancher that you get from the corner store. She's a sweet yeah. and she's powerful, you know, and I think let mama do it all, she says on that song. Like, how can you do it all? Like, what trying to be everything to everyone or be everything to your man, it sounds very exhausting but I do think it is the real her at this moment. Yeah, yeah, and I think also this album puts her on the ideological path to the girl bossdom that she eventually ended up in. Right, right, for better and worse. Yeah, for better and worse. <laughs> It's very complicated and it's also frustrating. And when you think about the videos for both of those, because also mm -hmm. for everyone who thinks that the self-titled album was her first fucking video album, this was her first video album. Mm -hmm. Every song is a video. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes, you just couldn't get it immediately on the internet. But in both the videos for Sugar Mama and Upgrade You, she is playing both the boy character and the girl character. Except for in Upgrade You, she's dressed up as Jay-Z, lip-syncing his lines. Hubby's the D-boy who infiltrated all the corporate dudes. They call shots, I call audibles. Take up the jeweler. And then towards the end of the fucking video, she disappears and the actual Jay-Z shows up. And it's like, whoa. And then she's just fucking gyrating and like doing her thing. And it's like, mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> and not even to throw in the mix here that upgrade you might be ape shit aside, perhaps the ultimate wealth and love entanglement yeah. song. I mean, they are essentially getting off on all of the luxury items that they're yeah. buying for one another. She's literally like panting towards the end of the song. Autumn Upper K watch, dimples in your necktie, Hermes briefcase, Cartier top clicks, silk line blazers. <laughs> That's how she expresses her love through being this traditional woman and also buying him material things or adding to his material wealth or being an accoutrement to his business meeting, which is another thing that she talks about. Take me just to compliment the deal. 
she says at one point. Yeah. Like, take me to the meeting as a dime piece. It's so interesting. I am utterly fascinated by this element of It's her, like of a her. kink. <laughs> yes, it's a kink. It's a kink. I yeah. think it makes her horny. <laughs> then the record takes a huge turn with Ring the Alarm, which is quite possibly one of the wildest pop songs I have ever heard in my entire life. And once again, if we're charting the infidelity anthems, I feel like this is another gigantic red splotch in that journey. Talk to me about Ring the Alarm, how it sounds, and what exactly Ring the Alarm is conveying about her or about whatever Dina Jones's pain. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, Dina Jones. <laughs> <laughs> this is supposedly, the rumors were that this song was the specific song about Jay-Z allegedly cheating on her with Rihanna. And... It was so widely believed that Matthew Knowles actually released a statement that was like, this is all nonsense. This Rihanna stuff is bullshit. But it's basically Beyonce saying, I will fucking kill you. <laughs> she's not going to cut a bitch, actually, which to her credit, she's going to cut the man in the song mm -hmm. and is imagining the other woman wearing chinchillas and being up in their house and shit. It's the flip side of the upgrade you thing, which is yes. like, once again, this is where the wealth accumulation turns on her. What she's ultimately concerned about, ultimately always in the song, is the other woman wearing her designer clothes is how yeah. she frames the betrayal, which I think is fascinating. So fascinating. And then you pair it with the video, which is three separate themes. There's her wearing barely any makeup and like some jeans and a t-shirt going off intimately screaming on the camera. And then there's her posing as Sharon Stone in Basic Instinct also going off. And then there's the dancing, which by the way, choreographed by Tiana Taylor. No! Who was a teenager. I did yes. not know that. <laughs> she was 15, Crazy. I think. Crazy. Again, how is this fucking related to Dreamgirls, honey? No. <laughs> I mean, give me a break. Also, this is a mode we've seen numerous times before in her. I read a review on air during the Dusty's Child episode where Rob Sheffield at Rolling Stone, when he was reviewing writings on the wall at the time, referred to the operatic paranoia of say my name that is engendered by lies and cheating and this is that on fucking steroids i mean yeah. this is a paranoid anxious meltdown on wax essentially yeah probably fully justified This is an incredible expression in the confines of a pop song of what lying and lack of honesty can do to a person's mental state. Like, it's true. That is what this is. And to have done it, I think, so innovatively over what is essentially a Swiss Beats beat that could have just as easily gone to TI or DMX, I kept thinking to myself, yeah. like, <laughs> is such a powerful consolidation of Beyonce's unique artistry and her positioning yeah. of herself as a rapper and within hip hop culture as well. Yeah. But it's like this really, I mean, long ask back to the blues when 
women <laughs> tradition of you hit a fucking tripwire. Oh, baby, the wire has been tripped. And then, of course, another quintessential Beyonce infidelity breakup anthem, which becomes the biggest hit of this record, mm -hmm. although sonically not really in step with most of it, Irreplaceable, which is a kind of broad pop ballad take on the same themes that's way less interesting than anything we've talked about thus far. I think you would agree with me. Yeah, it's funny because the the biggest song on this record and maybe of that year is my mm -hmm. absolute least favorite yeah. song on it. Well, in the narrative, this song really saved B-Day commercially yep. because Deja Vu was a moderate success. Ring the Alarm was essentially a flop, which makes sense on some level because it's a wild choice for a pop song. Although, yeah. in retrospect, one of her most iconic and fascinating. And then this song was number one for 11 weeks on the Hot 100. It's co-written by Neo, and Neo's having his moment at that time. Mm -hmm. It is kind of in the tradition of Beyonce's ballads and that it's mid-tempo, she's singing powerfully about something that happened to her, which is that her fucking man fucked her over and she's like, no, you are not going to do this to me and you can't do this to me because you must not know about me. <laughs> right. Kind of unlike the raw burst of emotion of Ring the Alarm, what this is and why it's such a less interesting song to me is it's kind of the typical pop feminism, yeah. female empowerment. I'm going to be resilient through this and I'm going to yeah. show you that like I can take the power back by sending you packing. You know what I mean? Ring right. the Alarm is such an interesting contrast to that because it's just a raw burst of anger. So it's more interesting, I think. Yeah, yeah, agreed. Irreplaceable is definitely the put on the strong face and power through it, which mm -hmm. I would hope most people know is also bullshit. And <laughs> you are myth busting left and right for the ladies. <laughs> if you put the strong face on now, then later you're going to have the ring the alarm moment. Mm -hmm. So, you know, maybe they should have reorganized the track listing for the narrative arc purposes. But <laughs> mm -hmm. I think what also this song says to me a is that I think Stargate is deeply overrated. And B, she Oof. really does Fuego. She really does thrive on resentment songs mm -hmm. or angrier songs. I think any emotions that have an edge really suit themselves to the barb quality in her voice that she can access. Irreplaceable, why it kind of doesn't really stir much in me is because it is a little bit measured and breathy. Mm -hmm. It feels like a concession to me on an album that makes yeah. almost no concessions. I think that's... Yes, You yes. know what I mean? Great point, yeah. Like, this is a record that feels so raw and so quintessential to her and her artistry. And mm -hmm. this record feels like we better throw a radio hit on yes. here in case things don't go well. And yeah. they were kind of smart to do so. But I think given how little she performs this song in the modern age, I think she might be on our side about it as well. Yeah, I think so. So as I mentioned, B-Day has an interesting commercial trajectory. I don't get the impression that it was nearly as culturally saturating, irreplaceable aside as Dangerously in Love was. I feel like this album really is a fan favorite and has grown in stature over time, but I think was almost a bit of a commercial disappointment that I think is played out in a series of events that I really don't want to spend too much time on because I think they're not the greatest moments in her career, which was a re-release of the record led off by a duet with Shakira called Beautiful Liar, which I would venture to say is one of Beyonce's 
Beyonce's worst singles ever. The only other thing I want to touch on from this era is Dreamgirls itself, which comes out later in the year after B-Day comes out. What do you think about Dreamgirls? Like, what do you think of her performance in it? What do you think she's trying to telegraph to us by playing this character? What's your impression of Dreamgirls? It's interesting. Speaking of Diana Ross, I almost think of it as more in line with Mahogany, where it's a little bit autobiographical, but you're not, it's supposed to be inferred, but you're not actually supposed to think it. And I think she put her whole pussy in it for her talent <laughs> at the time. But, mm-hmm. you know, she just... That's a good could, caveat to throw in at the end of that sentence. At the time, right? She was hitting, <laughs> like, what she was capable time. of at the time, right? Think about all the beautiful black women that ain't even born yet. When they grow up, they're going to say, I can play any part I want to. Look at Dana Jones. She did it. But it's ridiculous. Come on. She's 16 years old for most of the movie. Well, baby, you always be 16 to me. Maybe that's the problem. Maybe you just don't see me for who I am. But she was Mm -hmm. no Jennifer Hudson. And obviously there was the whole drama about Jennifer Hudson being the person who was nominated for an Oscar. And Mm -hmm. then that was the thing. And then when she won it, that was supposedly a thing. I'm sure Beyonce was happy Mm -hmm. for her, but this was supposed to be Beyonce's moment in the game plan. This was supposed to be her elevating moment to a respected film star Because Mm -hmm. while she had been in films before, I don't think anyone really thought of her as like a wonderful actor. A great actress? Are you saying that Carmen (laughs) the Hip Hopera and Foxy Cleopatra did not establish her in the grand pantheon? I'm trying to be nice here. You're being so nice. Like, it's okay. She's so good at so many things. It's okay that she is not that great at acting. It actually is one of the most humanizing things. That and having a embarrassing mother on Instagram. (laughs) I love her mom on Instagram. But yes, (laughs) it was kind of the first thing that she'd ever tried that she didn't fucking murk. (laughs) Murder. Right. It's so true. It's true. That's why I say it's almost humanizing. Yeah. Whether you think the performance is good or not, that she ended up having to play second fiddle because Beyonce never had to play second fiddle throughout her career. So there was a little bit, I think, of like almost penance or schadenfreude on behalf of the viewing public that Jennifer Hudson did step in and kind of like sweep that whole thing out from under her. Yeah. So she's kind of coming into the Sasha Fierce era in 2008, not as an underdog by any means, but not exactly in the same unimpeachable place that she was in commercially following Dangerously in Love, which is why... I think this is an interesting album as a narrative piece in her arc and certainly not as music. (laughs) But I Am Sasha Fierce represents something about the last time that Beyonce made concessions for commercial gain in her music. And I want to get into this conversation by talking about the conceit of this record. So the idea here behind this record is a double album where Beyonce's personalities are split into two parts. The first is I Am, which is essentially, I guess, the real Beyonce or something. And Sasha Fierce, who we've touched on briefly before, which is her possessed onstage vehicle for both like her fearsome performance style and her more unsavory emotions, I think maybe, or what she deems her more unsavory emotions, her anger, her vengefulness, her madness, her her cuckoo craziness that comes out sometimes. You know what I mean? So what do you think that 
division is serving for her in an artistic sense? Why is she presenting these two things as separated in the context of I Am Sasha Fierce? I think there are two things. One is that Mm -hmm. Sasha Fierce, she said, was developed when she first started performing solo and she was kind of nervous and maybe she's shy. She certainly seems like she could be or was to a degree. Some performers are, even if they're the best performers in the world. Mm -hmm. And so I think it helped her embody the performance that she became and so maybe it was her paying homage to that or maybe it was retrospective regret for the emotion that she put out on b-day maybe she was like oh fuck i showed too much but then the other thing is that because b-day didn't perform like they wanted it to they being the music industry or label columbia i think it was like okay well i want to do all this other music she's a polyglot a musical polyglot she wanted to try different things maybe in this case the wrong things (laughs) she wanted to show that she could do other types and styles of music and then because she had all of this in her she had to like overperform to make sure that this would sell yeah I would throw in the mix a racial component to a it. Deep because racial, yeah. Perhaps she felt she was too black mm. on B Day. Yes. And in 2008, even more so than in 03 and 06 when her previous solo records came out, and certainly more so than when Desi Child was at its peak, pure pop and white pop stars were mm-hmm. emerging as the centerpiece and once again sort of usurping hip-hop at the center mm-hmm. of popular music. You had Katy Perry emerging. You had Lady Gaga emerging. I do feel like this double album was almost like her saying, I'm going to make music that's palatable for white people on one half of this record. And I think that is an interesting reality check about how music was operating in this particular period. Because yeah. I do think she's speaking to some something that really was happening in this moment. But it also is the only time in Beyonce's discography where I felt like artistry has been usurped by craven commercial goals and where the work truly suffered under the weight of what she felt like this album had to do for her career, which was reestablish her as an A-list pop force at the top of the game. And as a result, it is far and away my least favorite Beyonce project and I'm including Destiny's Child in this mix. Yeah, I agree. And I actually do think it is let's make music that's palatable to white people, but I'm not sure that it came from her. It reads to me more like music industry fuck holes (laughs) Mm -hmm. coming in from on high and saying this last album didn't do very well you have to fucking overperform I I agree with you I mean as much as I dislike this record it did do something important which was she needed this final salvo as a game playing earthbound single bound pop star in order to move on to this next phase of her career where she transcended that completely and was able to leave that entirely behind to become something greater, larger than a pop star, something bigger than pop music, something bigger than hit songs. But I don't know that she would have been afforded that impact that her next few works have had without first having to take one last dive into, as I mentioned with Irreplaceable, concessions 
yeah. for her commercial gain. So the first two singles that we get from this record are split between these two sides. They're the song that I think they expected was going to be the bigger hit because it sounds very much like Irreplaceable. It's called If I Were a Boy. Yeah. It is almost a country rock song that is in the style of Fergie's Big Girls Don't Cry more than anything else that I could think of and is a boring retread of some of themes that Beyonce has addressed more interestingly in the past about gender roles flipping and presents a pretty sad picture of men in her eyes. Yeah. Well, the other thing is, this is the only song that she did not write on this mm-hmm. album. So it says something, I think, that it's along the themes, but it's an outlier that's sort of a sad, right. sad thing. Right. The song that becomes the way bigger hit and probably still to this day is her signature mm-hmm. song is the way more bizarre in the style of B-Day, yeah. essentially an extension of the Swiss Beats, Get Me Bodied style, clap, syncopated, bounce and dance hall rhythms of B-Day, the Sasha Fierce single, Single Ladies Put a Ring yeah. On. It's hard to even think about it because now it has become such a cultural phenomenon that like Mm -hmm. to take it back to when it was released, you have to rewind so much. Part of its popularity was the video and it was like Mm -hmm. proto TikTok, honestly. Mm -hmm. Everyone knew the dance. It was an iconic dance. The styling was amazing. The song was weird and Mm, such a weird song. So weird. And that's Mm -hmm. why it's great, even though Mm -hmm. she's like, hey, dude fucking marry me Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know (laughs) it's not weird in its ethos or in the culture that it's presenting which is essentially i would like you to propose to me and i'm completely powerless to make this dream of marriage happen until you feel good and ready yes (laughs) yes exactly And it's also Tricky Store and the Dream, their sound has risen to this like astronomical level. I think the culture was ready for a B-Day song. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's so funny. It's like the B-Day is song is the most successful song on this record while the B-Day songs on B-Day couldn't connect. Yeah. I think one of the things that makes this song zing and is so weird is these dissonant minor key chords that are playing beneath the clapping. Yep. over this essentially like schoolyard chant of a lyrical line and vocal delivery. Right. Sasha Frere Jones referred to it in The New Yorker as a jumble of feelings and sounds that don't resolve but never become tiring. I thought that was a nice way of describing it. it. (laughs) The secret ingredient 
is that this is something that she replicates in multiple songs throughout her career, but Mm -hmm. it's got a hook that everyone wants to sing. That's how it becomes a cultural phenomenon, actually, because it becomes a bonding moment. Yeah, it ties back to Crazy in Love in this way because it's also the repetition. The way that the Crazy in Love hooks got me looking so crazy right now. Your love's got me looking so crazy right now. This is, if you like it, then you should have put a ring on it. If you like it, then you should have put a ring on it. And then both are couched by this post-chorus. In Crazy in Love, it's the uh-oh, 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 oh, nana. And in Single Ladies, it's what uh-oh, 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 uh-oh. The other thing that I think links this to Crazy in Love is she sounds out of her fucking mind on this song. Yeah. Like, this is the ravings of a lunatic. The more she lets the lid off the unhinged madness in her, and that often stems from her desire for monogamous romantic love, weirdly <laughs> enough, her weirdest side comes out in pursuit of that, <laughs> and in feeling like that's been stripped from her, or the illusion of that has been stripped from her. This song, she sounds berserk. Like, she's truly out of her mind, and I think that's the thing that maybe she's uncomfortable with, that she feels like she has to give it an alternate name of Sasha Fierce or whatever is that she's maybe not totally comfortable in her personal life with this side of her that's a little bit crazy. Ironically, these are also the songs that she sounds happiest singing. And it's like, oh my God, there's the pathos. Like, Beyonce, are you truly happy? Like, (laughs) So Single Ladies becomes one of Beyonce's most iconic hits. Let's touch briefly on Sasha Fierce, an album that I think we both dislike. I dislike both sides of it. I will tell you, I greatly dislike the ballad half, the Beyonce I am half. It is just saccharine. There's never been a collection of songs that Beyonce has ever released that feels like it could have been sung by almost any other singer. There's no personality. I don't have much to say about these songs. And as you mentioned earlier, I too despise Halo. I can't believe it exists. I know that it's like an inspiring song along the lines of fucking war and like brave. I know people fucking light candles and shit to Mm -hmm, this song, mm -hmm. but it is so cloying to me. And I'm like, yeah, sure, you sound great, but like this is just a waste of your talent. I agree. She sounds distant to me on these records. Like, I don't feel like I'm getting that direct shot of Beyonce in any of these songs. And then on the Sasha Fierce half, I think there's a number of songs here that feel like they're trying to keep up with Rihanna. I would throw Radio into that mix. Rihanna has just happened, and it's very obvious when I hear a song like Radio. I am actually more interested in Ego. It's raunchy as fuck. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And she's been exploring her sexuality in music, but she's never gone to this blue double entendre. She's just like singing about a dick. You can get (laughs) mad at that, you know? (laughs) 
She makes it sound classy somehow with this like classic horn laden <laughs> arrangement. She makes it sound like a real Vegas review. Right. A real. <laughs> it's like Liza. <laughs> <laughs> like Liza and the pro dick cabaret. It's just a brassy little yeah. shimmier. <laughs> so you know what? I feel like that's all I need to say about yeah. I Am Sasha Fierce. I think I Am Sasha Fierce served its purpose. Let's yeah. just put it that way. Single Ladies was number one song. If I Were Boy, although I don't think anybody remembers it, hits number three. Halo hits number five. People do like that song and I am happy for them. Beyonce then does something that she has not done pretty much in her entire career up to this point, which is she takes a pretty long hiatus mm. between I Am Sasha Fierce and Four, her fourth album and the last one that we're going to discuss in this particular segment of this podcast. I'm intrigued by this moment in her career where she takes a break because I think it says something about the transition she makes between wanting to be a conventional pop star and what she's going to become yeah. next in her her life, which is something other than that. So what happens in this period, interestingly, while Beyonce is on her Epre love journey, music entirely changes. I mean, an entire new guard of pop stars and a female pop stars comes in and essentially usurps the conversation. We've talked about them slightly, but in this period, Gaga, Rihanna, and Katy Perry most notably come onto the scene and center electronic dance music yeah. as de rigueur pop. Beyonce herself takes one step into the EDM world, not on her own material, but as a feature on Lady Gaga's smash hit, Telephone, in 2010. The other notable thing to point out in this particular moment is she fires Matthew as her manager. I mean, I mentioned Janet Jackson before and control and it's like, okay, she could exhale and do mm -hmm. whatever she really wanted. I mean, I wonder how much Matthew was involved in Sasha Fierce because Matthew Knowles was very involved with the label and how much of it was him and the label just saying like, you have to do this. And then she's like, fuck you. I'm going to do all this other shit. <laughs> yeah. She returns in 2011 with a single called Run the World Girls, which essentially takes Major Lazer's Pony Floor. directly rips it and makes, I guess, telephone aside, her only true swing at an trendy EDM era hit. It was weird because it felt late to me because Pond of Floor had been out for years and it was a phenomenal song. And when it came out, I remember hearing it for the first time, like Diplo DJed it. And I was like, oh my God, I felt like I could hear music shifting. And it kind of mm -hmm. did signify that. Oh, for sure. The original is absolutely breathtaking. It's breathtaking. So 
she samples that and it's super late. It coincides perfectly though with the very cusp of the beginning of girl boss feminism. So I liked it and I still rock with it, mm. but it hit this vein of, oh, like feminism is going mainstream again a little bit. But mm-hmm. I think that it was like this sort of widening of people's interest in feminism. And I don't know, maybe I like it just because the choreography was great. <laughs> to me, this song makes her seem out of touch. And I think yeah. that that is jarring to me because as you said, it felt late. It felt craven. It was her last real craven attempt at a single. You could tell, especially when you get into hearing what the rest of four sounds like, that they felt like none of the other songs on this record were going to do well. And they had to find something that notably she does not include on the traditional track list of the album. It is a bonus song on the album. Yeah. And... I kind of feel like it's a lonely island version of a Beyonce feminist anthem. Like, wow. <laughs> it feels like a facsimile of a facsimile of a facsimile of independent women ethos. Like, it's just like, okay, we need a Beyonce-styled song, broadly speaking, in the context of EDM. And yeah. here it is. Of course, she's going to sell it and make it iconic because she's Beyonce and that's what she does. But I do remember feeling at the time like, uh-oh. Like, she is losing her grip. Like, if Crazy in Love was the zeitgeist, if Single Ladies was the zeitgeist, if Destiny Child was the zeitgeist, as they all were, this was not the fucking zeitgeist. And at that point, I remember just feeling to myself, like, if you're not going to be the zeitgeist, do something cool and don't do something trendy. So I was deeply concerned about Four having heard Run the World. I was like, "Uh uh-oh, like, this is going to be the moment. But luckily for us, Run the World was a giant motherfucking red herring because (laughs) four drops and talk to me about four. What is four thematically and how does four sound? And how does four expand the Beyonce project and Beyonce's artistry that helps kind of set up this next decade of her career? Four sounds like she and (laughs) Jay-Z figured out their shit. (laughs) Four is the album after couples therapy. is her patented mix of ecstatic love and then sort of anxiety about ecstatic love. Sonically speaking, we're dealing with a lot of R&B radio history. I Mm -hmm. feel like there's a lot of 70s R&B. There's horns and bridges and Stevie Wonder style instrumentation and vocal acrobatics. I mean, she has never sounded better on record than she does on this album. You could characterize for as just an incredible showcase for Beyonce's voice, which you were talking about earlier in the conversation. Yes. Take a song like One Plus One, for instance, just an utter masterclass in control, in slipping her voice between octaves. It is an Olympian's exemplary performance of pop and R&B singing. I think you have songs like One Plus One, which are about 
ecstatic love, devotion to ecstatic love. Once again, the freedom of sexuality she feels yeah. in the context of ecstatic love. But then you also have these sort of dissonant, quiet, low-key songs. And that's what I feel like does sort of define for is it is her most low-key record. You yeah. have songs like I Miss You, written by Frank Ocean, which weirdly doesn't slot easily into either of the two Beyonce modes. It's a song essentially about just being away from somebody that you love and how mm -hmm. that feels. And maybe emotional distance, but it doesn't slot easily into her two main modes of infidelity or bombastic ecstatic love. I miss you like It is also a lot less explicit. It's much more general about emotion rather mm. than things that you can read into that will become tabloid fodder. Absolutely. That's so true. These songs feel classic and divorced from time and maybe divorced from specificity on yeah. some level. Mm -hmm. Like yes. they're a showcase more than they are a narrative arc. Like you think about a song like Rather Die Young, the ultimate cliche, I'd rather die young than live my life without you. But then you also have these series of songs that I just think rank among the top Beyonce songs ever put on record. First, you have Party, which essentially is like an 80s R&B yes. song. It's nice to feel like she is unencumbered on a song. You know, there aren't a lot of songs post-Destiny's Child that position Beyonce in concert with her girlfriends, other than, I guess, Run the World. But mm. this kind of feels like she is kicking it with her girlfriends, you know? And obviously she shifts that as her career goes on, but mm -hmm. it definitely is a little bit of an outlier. It's like more of an empowerment song, I would say, than Run the World. It's a less airsats empowerment song than Run Yes, World. exactly. It's not branding. I think this album is chill in its sound and chill in its approach. She wanted this to be a languid exploration of sounds and what else she could do with her voice and perhaps try to explore what being a post-centrist singles pop star mm. could sound like mm -hmm. on her. And I think the most exciting representations of that are back to back on the back end of the record, which are Love on Top, which is the ecstatic love song to end all ecstatic love songs yeah. in Beyonce's discography. It is Stevie Wonder, it's Whitney, it positions her in this lineage of iconic black R&B artists. It is pure joy rendered on song. I mean, it is like, if you don't smile when this song comes on, like something is truly wrong with you it's gloriously cheesy and uncool and on the best Beyonce bombastic love song she makes being in a boring ass long-term monogamous relationship <laughs> sound like the most incredible thing that could ever happen and this song climaxes in this absolutely jaw-dropping series of octave changes where she just continues to repeat the chorus in ascending yeah. octaves <laughs> that is the victory lap of her career or something it like is that. it is she's like <laughs> you're saying bolt <laughs> <laughs> you're the one that I love. Baby, you're the one that I love. Baby, you're the only one 
And then there's the ultimate Beyonce song to me, which is Countdown, Countdown. which essentially synthesizes every Beyonce song of the past. The snapping, clapping rhythms of Get Me Body and Single Ladies. The blaring horn section of Mm -hmm. Crazy in Love. The geniusly selected samples, this time boys to men's uh uh-uh, that position her squarely in this lineage of black R&B tradition. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Powers them all into the greatest celebration of this relationship and of her and Jay's trajectory to this point that could ever have possibly been rendered. And she sounds out of her mind on it as well. I would go to bat and say this is the greatest Beyonce single ever. It also brings in the singability too with like mm. the simplest concept of like a countdown and it's all the fucking ways that she's in love with her <laughs> monogamous man. <laughs> it's like the fucking 12 days of Christmas of Jay-Z and Beyonce. <laughs> and it's also one of her best videos, I would say. Oh. But she's so smart and bringing in the boys to men thing. Mm-hmm. She knows her music because she knows that she's going to get the old heads with this song mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. she's going to bring in all of the new. Absolutely. It's like she's R&B past, present and future all in one. I also think this song is extremely funny. We talked on the Destiny's Child episode about her penchant for making funny records like Survivor and Bootylicious. This song is equally hilarious and like many of those songs, like Bootylicious, like Bugaboo, like the word surfboard that she will bring into fruition on her next record. This has its own lingua franca almost. She says things like me and my boof and my boof boof riding. So this is like a wild, cacophonous, insane Beyonce stomper of the highest order. But this song kind of aside, the rest of the record is almost like adult contemporary in a sense, like in a good way. I love this album. But... I kind of remember thinking to myself, like, okay, like perhaps Beyonce's moment in the centrist pop spotlight was, yeah. was over at this point. It definitely did feel like Beyonce's grown. I never really felt like her time was going to end. I remember thinking at the time, I feel like this is her setting herself up to have a great legacy career doing covers and old people music, and I'll be happy to go along with that. But between Run the World flopping and the way that this record sounded, I kind of just remember feeling like the days where Beyonce is a central pop figure that captures the imagination of the monoculture felt like potentially it was ending with this record. Yeah. That's how I felt. Yeah, I think I could see that. I don't think I had any idea 
what was in store for the next swing of her career. No, I mean, no one could. Because it is, I mean, it is a fairly traditional album. And she was like, all right, the culture is getting a little boring, I guess. Mm -hmm. Let me like stir everything up and change the whole music industry. There's no indication that that's going to happen on this shit. Change music industry and change pop stardom, I think. Make pop stardom into something bigger than it had ever been before. That's what I would say about it. Yeah. I agree. So Beyonce headlines the Super Bowl in 2013. Again, before we know what this surprise album is in the works, but it has Mm -hmm. not yet come into our consciousness. She does this incredible kind of capstone thing where she brings Destiny's Child out. You know, we talked about how she's the best performer alive, basically. Right. She knocked it out the park for this, even beyond anything I think that we'd seen her do before because she knew the stakes. Yeah, I mean, I, what can you even say about it? Like, I think you're right that this was the moment where she maybe ascended to that title, like officially. Yes. I think people knew it, obviously, but I think this performance was one of those moments like Homecoming where people were like, what the actual fuck? Like, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen in my life. Like, Also, is this the moment that she ascended to the top tier? Well, that's the question. So that's the last question I was going to ask you. We know she's tier one now, but was she tier one here? Yeah, I think the Super Bowl solidified it. I, I tend to think it's the visual album, but maybe it was the Super Bowl yeah. into the visual album. In tandem, In tandem, for sure. yeah. When she managed to come back and figure out a way to reinvent her career for the third time, bigger than it had ever been before. Yeah. 15 years into it. That was to me when it was no longer deniable that she was one of the greatest pop stars that had ever existed. I mean, she's always been one of the greatest performers. She's always been someone to admire. She was tier two, I think, pretty much starting from like crazy in love. (laughs) Like, I don't know. But like, I don't know. I still feel like she was cuspy at this moment. But I do think the Super Bowl did help propel her to tier one. So my final question before the two of us faint is... (laughs) What's an underrated song from this era that we didn't touch on that we could send the podcast out on? Underrated, School in Life, Dream and Tricky Story. This is Beyonce's Prince song. I mean, she's like long admired and loved and performed with Prince. This is her princiest song. And I think she only could have done it with Dream and Tricky Story because they're both fucking obsessed with Prince as well. Mm-hmm. I just think it's one of her best songs. Let's go out on Schooling Life. Julian Escobedo Shepard, thank you so much for once again sitting here with me for three <laughs> plus hours to talk about pop music. Honestly, there's very few people on this earth that I like doing this. <laughs> me too thank you so much for having me and i'm gonna go eat some food <laughs> go eat some food all right so there you have it 
part two of our Beyonce series on the first half of her solo career. We will be back next week with the second half of her solo career covering Beyonce the visual album, Lemonade, Everything is Love, Homecoming, Black is King, and I want to say the biggest, heartiest thank you to my girl, Julianne Escobedo-Shepard. What a trooper. I love talking to her so much, and that's why I make her sit here for so many hours with me and dissect every single thing I can get her mind to focus on. I am so grateful to her for giving me so much of her time and energy. Thank you all for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Pop Pantheon wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media at Pop Pantheon Pod and me at DJLOUIEXIV on both Twitter and Instagram. Get in the Discord and check out the Spotify playlist. The links for all of that stuff is in the show notes and will be in all of the social media stuff. And until next week's next Beyonce episode, have a wonderful life. Okay. Adios, guys. Bye. And this-